190 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Tuesday 19th of June 2018. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. I once had a whore send me out for a box of matches, gave me a dollar and told me to keep the change. I have gone for medicine and doctors and got lots of cocaine for them. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed of BikeBiz.com, and despite the lack of an American accent there, that was a quote from an American bicycle messenger boy from about 1910. And it was part of a presentation I saw the other day in London's historic Guildhall. I was at the International Cycle History Conference, and the messenger boy's quote was in a paper read out by Chris Sweet, a librarian and historian at Illinois Wesleyan University in Bloomington, Illinois. I snuck him out of the conference for a quick interview, and as you'll soon hear, Chris is also an active bicycle advocate and a former pro triathlete. I recorded the interview for a new podcast I'll be launching soon. As you can tell from the title, Cycling History Dot Today, it won't be as wide-ranging as the Eclectic Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast, and it won't be everybody's cup of tea. History isn't. However, Chris's interview cut across genres, so I've put it out here for general release. So we are now in the exterior of... Uh, Guildhall and the, the conference, the International Cycle History Conference is going down um, below us. Um, we might actually hear some of that on the, uh, uh, the tape, perhaps. Now, uh, you gave your talk yesterday? Wednesday. 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 Time flies. It does. Time flies. So you gave your, your talk on the first day of the conference mm -hmm. and it had some fantastic photographs there from Lewis Hines, who took an enormous body of work. Sure. But he certainly seemed to have a great interest in bicycle messengers. So we are talking like uh, delivery boys, mostly boys, um, 1890s through to 1920s, 1930s, sure. which is your interest uh, in the, the talk you were giving. So, so basically give us a, a, a snapshot of, of what your, your talk at this conference was about. Yeah, I think you covered some of the, the, the high points. Um, I, I can say something maybe about that time frame and the reasons for it. Uh, I used 1890s up to about 1938 because this is the, the time when uh, American labor laws and American child labor laws were becoming um, established. There were multiple attempts at uh, how do we regulate this? How do we make sure that uh, kids are not being exploited, uh, overworked, killed, maimed, what have you, uh, on the job? Uh, so there were certainly bicycle messengers after 1938 up until now. It's a, that's a whole other story, and many uh, there are multiple books have been have been written on that. So my real interest uh, after I discovered first some of these amazing images was how did the work of bicycle messenger boys 
play into the evolution of American labor law. So they were exploited. Would you say they're exploited? Because uh, absolutely, yeah. Do you think they felt they're exploited? Because the, the, one of the slides you put up there was where one of the uh, the boys is saying, you know, he goes to whorehouses and he delivers messages from here to there. He picks up cocaine. It's kind of a lifestyle. I mean, did, did you not think that kid actually kind of enjoyed? Yeah, in 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 that day and age, did they think they're exploited? No, because they could look around and see their friends of their age uh, being put to work in the the canning factories uh, and in the in maybe in the coal mines, depending on what area of the country they are. Um, it was uh, uh, it, for most people that weren't well to do. It was expected uh, that you were going to contribute in some way to the family finances. Uh, so the exploitation is more the, the, the type of wages that they were being paid. Uh, companies realized they could pay kids less than adults. Uh, and so there was certainly exploitation going on. Would the kids have recognized it? I don't, probably not universally know. So why are they not at school? I mean, is, is, was this a full-time occupation for these kids or were these, so are they skipping school to do this? You have all sorts of combinations. Um, a, some who needed to earn enough to keep the family afloat, keep the family fed, there was no requirements to go to school. Uh, they, they just, they worked to, as, as much as they could uh, and just dropped and dropped out of school. Uh, there was another segment that worked after school. I found some documentation of, you know, kids getting off of school at three or four uh, and working till midnight every every day of the week, and then working Saturdays. Amazing. Uh, so that that uh, that kind of schedule, you can imagine, they're uh, turning around with uh, maybe six hours of sleep a, a night and just doing it for days, and may have led to some of the accidents. Actually, mm -hmm. you come to come to think about it. So Lewis Hines, who, who took these unbelievably wonderful photographs which you, you can go and get at the Library of Congress and you can some an awful lot of them are digitized you can search on this and you can you can find these photographs was he interested in cycling or was he interested in the the messengers boys because of the work they were doing and their exploitation why was he taking the photographs do you think and then and writing very good notes uh, about these messenger boys he wasn't specifically interested in cycling uh, Lewis Hine is, uh, has a, a many famous images of child laborers, um, some of them that are reproduced in books and documentaries and things. If you see some of these classic images of child coal miners, they're probably Lewis Hine. If you see kids working in canning factories from this, uh, this time period, quite likely to be Lewis Hine. He documented uh, more than 5,000 for the National Child Labor Committee uh, during the 10 years that he worked for them. Um, so, Bicycle messengers were one segment uh, of the the type of child laborers that he that he that he looked at. So one of the the conclusions you came to in your talk was that because um, bicycle messenger boys were and children were very visible, because you could see them being exploited because they're going from whole houses, they're going wherever, and you can you can as, as members of the public you could see this happening. There was more likelihood of things changing compared to if you're in a, in a coal mine because that's a hidden occupation in effect. So the conclusion is it's because this is happening in the public mm -hmm. and people see this, that's why there's more awareness. Yeah, and that may have been intentional on, on uh, Lewis Hines' part to recognize that there would be some um, uh, public uh, outcry uh, over this because they were aware. I mean, it's easy to go see that they called them street trades. They're two big street trades. They were either newsboys or messenger boys. Uh, 
And they did differ, if you think about it, quite a bit from um, people being, uh, kids being exploited in a factory job. You know, they, they um, uh, factory job, they often walked there very early in the morning. They were there for a 10 hour work day. Uh, they were behind closed doors uh, until the social documentary photo photographs started coming out. Nobody really knew, uh, other than the kids that were there and, and working, uh, what, what was going on. So it really, um, to bring the Bicycle Messenger boys out and say, hey, this, you know, we all see them. We see them every day. You see them when you're uh, out on the streets. This is what they do. This is the kind of hours that they, that they work. These are the types of people that they're exposed to. And that really started to raise awareness of uh, uh, child messengers and the kind of uh, exploitative uh, labor. So we no longer see kids doing this stuff. Um, apart from maybe delivery riders, like the, the, but they're not kids. There, we're talking sure. uh, teens and on. So, g give us a potted history of, of how the visibility of the messengers and how maybe Lewis Hine uh, photographs how that changed labour laws to prevent kids doing this. So it was all part of um, broadly the progressive reform movement in the in the United States, uh, and we can say that this is um, roughly later 1890s, 1900. Uh, through the 1930s, uh, that this was a big movement um, uh, along with women's suffrage, same, same, same time period. Uh, and the reformers uh, were interested in um, a lot of what we would call social justice issues today. Uh, and one of those issues being uh, child labor. And a variety of different groups were looking at uh, how do we reduce the hazards of child labor, the amount of hours that our kids are working to make sure that they actually have a, a childhood um, with these sort of idealistic goals of they should be in school because this is where they learn to become uh, informed citizens who can vote in a democracy. This was the, the big ideals. Uh, and, and so they, they can't do this if they're delivering packages, um, uh, working in the, uh, the fields and uh, the mines. So there were a number of attempts at, at, at uh, uh, national legislation. Um, there were a couple of um, uh, uh, attempts in 1916 and 1918 uh, to regulate uh, child labor. They were uh, tossed out by the Supreme Court. Congress tried their own uh, piece of new uh, legislation. Uh, it uh, did not make it into law uh, either. So there were all these attempts. They kept failing for a, a variety of reasons. Uh, it wasn't until 1938 that the Fair Labor Standards Act uh, was passed. Fair Labor Standards Act then uh, it established a minimum wage, which is quite important. It, it, it established maximum working hours. Uh, and it really just um, it took the economic incentive away from hiring child laborers. Kids were able to be paid less than adults prior to the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, so once that incentive went away, uh, child labor dropped uh, dramatically from where it had been. Chris, thank you for that. Now tell us about your day job and why you're here. <laughs> yeah, my, 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 my day job. My day job is uh, as uh, information literacy librarian at Illinois Wesleyan uh, University that's in uh, uh, central Illinois, about two hours south of uh, Chicago. Uh, so uh, a number of times at conferences like these, uh, you know, what, what brings you from the library at Illinois Wesleyan to uh, London to talk about bicycles, uh, bicycle history. 
my uh, undergraduate degree is is in history, so that's part of the part of the story. Is that I've always had a passion for for history and American history specifically, um, and of course the, the the library side of things lends itself to historical research. Uh, I have access to a, a huge amount of databases that the general public would not have. Uh, access to uh, and the means and the skills uh, to do this uh, to do this sort of research. So it's been um, about five years ago. My uh, sabbatical project for the university was to work on the history of Illinois cycling. I thought that was just going to be an article when I when I proposed it. I thought it was going to be an article. Uh, it took only two weeks of research to realize that there was a, a wealth of material out there and enough for a book. Uh, so I began doing research and writing towards the ends of uh, publishing a book on that topic. Uh, and that led me to two prior um, uh, International Cycling History conference presentations. Uh, it's led to um, a variety of um, uh, presentations, some other uh, writings about bicycle history. So, Illinois is quite important in, in American bicycle manufacturing. Yeah, and, and major companies there. Yeah, it, it, certainly. I think a lot of people know it for manufacturing, and, and more than likely, if they know they, they know Schwinn as one of the great um, uh, success stories of American manufacturing, when um, most bicycle companies went belly up, Schwinn was the juggernaut that kept on um, and you know really dominated the American market in the twenties uh, through uh, say sixties, seventies when they had some of their successes with uh, child, children's bikes and stingrays and, the, and, that, and that sort of thing. So that's what's known. The rest of it that I'm working on, uh, it has not been written nearly as much or at all uh, about, um, uh, along the way I realized I needed to document how many manufacturers there were because just, it, I kept coming across new ones. Mm -hmm. So there was a spreadsheet, the, the, the Wheelman organization has a spreadsheet of manufacturers and I, there were probably almost 200 uh, Illinois manufacturers before 1900 listed there. I started with that and I just kept adding and I made a key that said, where did I find this? I found it in an advertisement, found it in a newspaper article, I found it in a, a trade directory. Uh, and I'm up at 400 before 1900 now, 400 distinct bicycle manufacturers. I, I use that word. Um, some of them were taking other people's frames, putting their name badge on it. it, it it's difficult to distinguish. And that continues to the present day in the fact that SRAM was based in Illinois. Yeah, the, uh, it is based in Illinois. Yeah, the, um, I mean, a lot of manufacturing uh, for everybody has went overseas for, for sure. Uh, uh, bicycle manufacturing. Um, SRAM's headquarters is in uh, Chicago, and they do their design work there. Uh, some of the prototypes, some of the that that got SRAM on the map were tested uh, and ridden in Illinois, some small races even near my hometown. Uh, the first grip shift uh, to be used in an event was, uh, I think it's the first or one of the first was installed like in a garage the night before a race that's so not far from where I live. So it is fun to see this history start to come, uh, not full circle, but it, it keeps going on. It's just, it's the progression, I suppose. So you mentioned races there. And that's your background in that you're not just an academic, you, you, yep. you race these things. Yeah, that, uh, I suppose that is another way that I got into bicycle history is that uh, uh, as, a, as a practitioner, um, I, I, I started, uh, I rode my bicycle to my job when I was quite young. I uh, did my first race was 19, 
1993, first, uh, first triathlon was 1993, uh, and, and first mountain bike race was probably 96, uh, and have continued on since then. I mean, that was um, when I was uh, 14 and 16 getting started, and I, I never really looked back. So uh, triathlon was really the thing I did the, the, the most of. You know, it's um, more than 25 years of that, of triathlon racing. And you were a sponsored uh, athlete, at this, this point. is not just... Yeah, know. at, at, at uh, 20, 2012 to 2015, I did have a professional card. Uh, so uh, that was uh, uh, kind of a, a long-term goal for, for me. Um, for people that are not in the know about this, being a professional triathlete does not mean that was my job. <laughs> it's, a, it's a job for very few people. Uh, almost everybody has a side job that, uh, uh, that, that actually pays the, pays the bills. It, was, um, uh, it allowed me to get into races I otherwise would not be able to get into. Uh, uh, many races still provide um, comp entries for professionals, which was huge to, uh, I've, got, I've got young kids, uh, you know, a family on a budget if I can uh, go and do some races at uh, no cost and uh, if it's a small enough race, bring back some, you know, a little bit of prize money, then, then you know, that, that was a great thing. So you're pretty much into bikes. Yeah, you could, say, you, could, you could say that. It's an easy job, <laughs> doing that research, it's, it's the, you're coming from the sporting background. Uh, I'm, I, I, I'm involved in bicycle advocacy locally. We've got a, um, a, a kind of a bicycle co-op repair shop that we started on campus. There are uh, the campus bike share runs out of the library. You come to the library to check out a bike, uh, so yes. <laughs> Chris, you're a man after my own heart. Thank you very much. Thanks to Chris Sweet there. That interview, and a great many others, will make it onto Cycling History Today, a new podcast that I'll tell you more about when it's ready to launch. The next episode of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast will be recorded at the Impact Media Summit in Idaho, which takes place next week, and which will see me and the other journos present riding round a ski resort on electric mountain bikes and testing out a whole load of other kit too. Yep, it's a tough job. I plan to get that show online by the end of June. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.